welcome back to Now Screaming, episode 32. I'm Evan Culbertson. And I'm Liz Smart. And we're watching all the horror movies currently streaming on Netflix. So you don't have to. This week we're talking about the 1984 classic, Children of the Corn. Stephen King's Children of the Corn. This is our first Stephen King? The answer should be obvious, and yet it isn't. <laughs> uh, I think it is. I think there's only a couple on Netflix. And they usually say Stephen King's, like, thinner Stephen King's yeah. something. So I don't think we've done any of them on here. Hmm. We talked incessantly about uh, Stephen King uh, two episodes ago when we were talking about The Invasion. We did. But I don't think we've done a movie yet. This movie was directed by Fritz Kirsch and written by George Goldsmith. Apparently, Mr. King wrote a draft of the original script and... It was kind of boring. That's fair. So. It's a short story, so he had, he had to add, like, a lot to it. Apparently, it opened with, like, 30 pages of Bert and Vicky just, like, arguing in the car. Yeah. And, um. It's a big majority of the short story. <laughs> well, uh, George Goldsmith came in and cleaned that up and wrote this. Um, and those are two names that, if you haven't heard of, it's not a big surprise. Um, <laughs> not many people who worked on this movie went on to that much success. Hmm. Uh, and is it, I mean, is it, let's get things out of the way. I'm sure most of our listeners have, have seen it. Mm-hmm. We've both seen it before. I had, yeah. It's a movie that's part of the horror film canon. Yeah. I think it's more of a cult classic than like a tried and true classic. I, yeah, I couldn't, it's funny cause I, I don't really remember watching it the first time. It was part of a marathon. So like I, I didn't like take it in as much as I thought that I did. I was still surprised by a lot of the things that happened in the movie. I don't want to spend that much time talking about the plot. One, because I'll assume a basic familiarity. And two, because there isn't actually that much to talk no, about. No, it was, I actually was shocked watching it because there was a point where I paused it or something and it was like 22 minutes left in the movie. And I was like, oh, nothing happens in this movie. <laughs> like, it's pretty slow. Uh, lots of driving, lots of running, and uh, then a nice big finale for everybody. So it's, it's there's not a lot going on. Yeah, let's, I mean... Let's start with that elephant in the room, which is, I think I want to like this movie more than I actually do like it. Oh, 100%. Like, I, I, I feel some goodwill for it. And there's some things in here that really, really work. But for the most part, I was kind of disappointed rewatching this. I agree completely. I think for me, we'll go into this more, but for me, it was really a script issue. I think so many things in this movie are so good. And, it's, and the things that are good are what you think of. Um when you think of this movie, like, Mm -hmm. you know, just there's a couple things I'm sure we'll go into later, but the script is really, really, really weak. And that's what I found myself like rolling my eyes at and kind of like, I found like I had this kind of weird look on my face full time of like confusion, not really getting why certain things happened the way that they happened. And there's a kind of some nonsensical Mm -hmm. plot holes that prevent this from actually being like, an actual classic, like what you called it earlier. Like, before watching this, I would have put this up there with Halloween, Nightmare, like all the big ones that we talk about, Friday the 13th. Um, Those are hokey in their own ways too, but they're considered classics because of their impact. This, like, parts of it almost weren't enjoyable because I found the script to be so bad. Yeah, I think that, I agree. Before watching this for the podcast, I would have put it in that pantheon, and now... Unfortunately, it feels more to me like it belongs in the lesser pantheon of Stephen King adaptations. Yeah. Of just like it's one of the better Stephen King adaptations, but there's not a lot of good ones. Yeah. Like there's so much of like, and I think that's part of. I want to talk a little bit about the legacy of this movie a little bit later, but I think that part of the reason that it has the reputation that it does is because it's a Stephen King short story, and it's funny you say that about Stephen King movies because the first. Two that I thought of are like two of the best. What? Uh, the Shining, and then I, my brain sort of went in the several directions of like, um, Pet Cemetery and Cujo and. I don't think Cujo's that good. It's not. That's what I'm saying. Like once I hit The Shining, then you're right. It split off into like. Well, no. I mean, I think Pet Cemetery is incredible. Let's. Um, I mean, I have to get this in, but Carrie. Brian De Palma's oh, Carrie is... Oh, of course, is... yes. You're, no, you're totally right. There's one more that I was thinking of. Um, and Misery. I really love Misery. Um, oh, and Stand By Me. I mean, that's not horror, but, like, it's a pretty good adaptation of a Stephen King novel. The, the worst ones are, like, 
Secret Window was so recent, and that's not a very good adaptation. And then I, you're right; I don't think Cujo's that good. But I mean, also, this is like listen, weirdly in the middle listen, of those. For every for every misery, there's a 1408, or right. you know, <laughs> is a, the Mist good? Have you seen the Mist? The Mist is bad. Okay, there's fair. a. I mean. A lot of them are miniseries. Oh, right. It. I forget about that because it's a miniseries, but I did think that was excellent as well. So there's a, a lot of good, a lot of bad. This, I think, is somewhere in the middle, right? Wouldn't you say? Yeah. It has a lot of good, but it it really ends up being more schlocky at certain parts than it needs to be. Mm-hmm. And again, I do. I really want to talk about the legacy of this and sort of where it fits in the bigger picture. I feel like we're doing a lot of a lot of negative setup here, and that's not... That's not really the tone of this episode that I was I'm, I'm looking for. So let's let's get into talking about the movie. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, again, there are things that work here, and we'll we'll get to them as we go through. Mm-hmm. Uh, for a a quick overview of plot for those of you who don't know what this is about, it's about a town in Nebraska called Gatlin, and it's a town where the children rise up and kill all the adults and uh, worship a corn god. <laughs> he who walks behind the rose. Yeah. And a couple, Bert and Vicky, classic horror movie style, stumble upon this town. You know, they're they're on a road trip and they take some wrong turns, get into this town, get into some trouble. And they get yeah, they just get chased around by some kids, and then they confront he who walks behind the rose, and that's that's it. That's, that's the really big it. picture. They live. It's it's very it's actually a very happy ending. It has a very positive uh, outlook. Mm-hmm. Uh, I guess we should let's start with the opening. Um, the opening of the sequence is it's a voiceover. By a child. Joby. Job. Joby. They call him Joby for most of the movie, and then we find out his name is Job. It's very confusing. (laughs) Which I think they're trying to... I mean, there's a biblical reason for it. Oh, 100%. Um, But I I really feel like it's undercut by calling him Joby, and then it kind of obscures that. And then Mm -hmm. I think that the Bible aspects of this are a little hand-wavy in total. Like, what this movie's... This movie's connection mm-hmm. to Christianity is, like, mm-hmm. kind of nebulous. But uh, it starts with... It starts with Job... Um, Talking about the day that it the all day that happened. This yeah. all happened, yeah. He was in church. His sister was homesick. All the other kids went to the cornfield with Isaac. Um, and plotted their... Uh, yeah. You know, overthrow of the town. But the first, like, real sequence is the sequence in this diner that I think is really good. I think mm-hmm. that... Um, What's happening is kids are coming in and they're locking the door and Isaac is peering in through the window. With his then, creepy hat. With his creepy hat. I think, I mean, it's one of the most iconic shots of the movie. Uh-huh. Um, and they, they poison some people and they stab some people. And, you know, this kid's here witnessing these older kids, you know, right. murder everyone in this diner. He clearly is like on the outs. He has no idea what's happening. All the other kids are very clearly like in on it. Um, and it's pretty grisly. It's very sadistic. I mean, they, like they put a guy's hand in a meat slicer. Oh, it's horrible. Um, they poison a lot of people, too. That's kind of, like, yeah. the way that they eliminate everybody pretty quickly is that they, like, poison all these old people's coffee. And unfortunately yeah. has one of the biggest plot holes in the movie that I we can talk about now or later, but, like, it Let's made me really mad. Let's save it. Because uh, I do think the sequence We'll save works. all the plot holes up for uh, another time. And honestly, I think that... It does. That no, aside, it's it, really well done. It builds dread really well. Again, it's horrifyingly I, violent, and there's something, like so off-putting immediately about like these children slaughtering these adults like, absolutely it's, and then, i mean most of the i do want to say like they're not really children they're like teenagers. they're teenagers a lot of them are, i mean there's a lot of children also a lot of them are teenagers um and that kind of it doesn't take away from the grizzliness for me it almost adds to it because it's that kind of like teenagers can be very terrifying when they mm-hmm. are the way that they're behaving in this movie when they're like mob like like this. And I think that's another that's it doesn't like take away from the creepiness. It kind of adds to it also that these should they're still children. They're under 18, but they are big enough to like prey on these adults. And that is scary. Mm-hmm. So the rest of the movie takes place three years after this event. Um, and we're sort of intercut between Job and Sarah and Bert and Vicky. Mm-hmm. Let's start with Bert and Vicky. Vicky is played by Linda Hamilton. Um, Sarah Connor from Terminator. Never seen any of those movies. Well, she's the... <laughs> I know I know who Sarah Connor okay. is. <laughs> the most important person in Terminator. Yeah. <laughs> um, he's a doctor. Uh, they're, they're driving and they get wrapped up in this. And I think that one of the... The things I forgot is that part of their hook into this is that there's a kid trying to run away from Gatlin. And again, this is intercut and I don't want to worry about the chronology of it, but there's a kid trying to run away... Job and Sarah are helping him. Mm-hmm. Um, he gets got in the cornfield. He does not succeed. By Malachi. By Malachi. He 
And they're running into the road, though, and they fucking hit him. Bert and Vicky, like, just plow into him, which is, again, so grisly. And it's horrible. I had totally he forgotten. He goes, like, under the front tires. Like, it's bad. I really didn't remember that's what happened, and I was like... Well, but it, it, it sets up a very interesting moment, which is cool, because obviously their their reaction is like, this child... We just killed a child. Mm-hmm. And it's... So their horror is so palpable. But then there's a there's a there's such a beautiful turn moment when they, like, when Bert turns over his body and sees that his throat has been cut mm-hmm. like imagine if that was you and you like you hit a child and you were feeling all that horror and guilt and then you realize that you've somehow stumbled into like a murder yeah and even vicky is like could it have been farm equipment and he's like absolutely no. not so it's just it's such an immediate amazing turn that they suddenly are like we got ourselves into something that we don't want to be in definitely and there's a couple of good shots here in this like next sequence where Malachi is again one of the teenagers. Um, if you haven't seen this for some reason, uh, Malachi is sort of stalking them, but we don't see anything other than his knife mm-hmm. in the like. First, it's the back of the rearview mirror, which is a really interesting shot. I rewound it because <laughs> it was really just a, you couldn't tell where it was really coming from. A weird way to frame that shot, and then they end up putting the the body of the kid in the trunk which is an extremely normal thing mm-hmm. to do. And Bert goes and gets his suitcase from the corn. Mm-hmm. It was so sad. He was so close to the edge of the corn. It made me so sad. He almost made it. Bert literally walked it into the corn and goes, oh, a suitcase. I was like, he was so close. It's so upsetting. God damn it, demon cult. So yeah, they go, Bert and Vicky are like, oh, we got a kid in our trunk. Well, let's go talk to this old man, ask for directions. They get the runaround. They end up in Gatlin and they end up, you know, meeting up with the kids. Uh, let's talk about the kids. Because mm-hmm. I think for the most part, I'm going to say something, I'm going to contradict it right away. Oh, boy. For the most part, I think this acting is actually pretty good for, for kids. I agree. Um, I was thinking the whole time that because this, uh, when you have a movie that is mostly kids, because mm-hmm. the whole time you're watching it, you're like, ah, Bert, Vicky, and a whole mass of children. Yep. And you have to have semi-strong performances, and they don't have to be adult-level performances, they can just they can just be good kid performances. I actually found myself thinking about um, this is a really weird like uh, parallel to make, but like it reminded me of Chitty Chitty Bang Bang sometimes, because it's like it's like two, it's like two adults and two kids, and you have the kids don't have to be incredible, but they have to at least be Competent, not annoying. Yeah. And these kids, for the most part, are not annoying. I agree. You hear that? Yeah. It sucks. It happened last time too. Was it a problem last time? No. But again, at the same time, when I think of good performances by child actors in 80s horror movies, this isn't going to be near the top of my list. Especially no, the Pet again, Cemetery kid. In comparison to Mwah. Pet Cemetery or even Child's Play, this I mean like I'm just not going to think of like these kids as being exemplary. The real no. performances in the movie that are re- the ones that stick with you are Malachi, Courtney Gaines, who's a little bit older. Uh, he was like 19 when they filmed this. And Isaac, who's uh, John Franklin, who was who, 25. Who was not a child. Mm-hmm. So and Bert and Vicky, who I, are adults. I think they're both really unremarkable, unfortunately. Mm. It's... I think Vicky's better than Bert. Sure. I think that, uh, you know, if if this movie was being remade, she would clearly, you know, be the driver of action here. Yes. Um, she's just a much more interesting character. Bert's yes. like, Bert is I'm kinda, a doctor. Kind of the worst. It's fine. We'll, uh, t- we'll talk about it later. I really hate him. But, like, I guess, like, this is the tension that I keep feeling when I think of this film is that like yeah things work the acting is fine but like really very little is going to stick with me and it is Malachi even though I'm going to make fun of his performance in a minute uh, and <laughs> Isaac who is like really Isaac's scary Isaac's the best he's the standout really of the movie 100% he is like the 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 pillar in this movie uh, of like yes, absolutely what is scary mm-hmm. do you want to talk about Isaac and Malachi? I would love to uh you talk about Malachi first? He made me laugh. Yeah, Malachi's fucking obnoxious. <laughs> My favorite moment of his was, um, there's a, because Malachi's whole thing, the entire movie is that like, Isaac is a little complicated in his... Evil? N- not evil, in like the way that he runs this town. Because he's, he's very like religiously upright and he has these rules, but he doesn't really seem to mind that Job and Sarah like break them. They're, the kids are not supposed to listen to music. They're not supposed to enjoy things. And Job and Sarah go to their house every day and play and listen to records and draw pictures and enjoy themselves. And every time Malachi is like, what's up, Isaac? These kids are 
freaking obeying. But they had a game. They had a game. And music. It's forbidden. <laughs> That's what I was going to say is when he goes, it's forbidden. <laughs> and I was like, only a teenager would say it exactly like that. It's forbidden. But Isaac doesn't give a shit. He, he's like, he's happy that Sarah like has this gift of sight. Yeah. Well, like, because he just doesn't care. Sarah's drawings uh, tell the future. Right. And the day that the reaping happened of the adults... Uh, she was in bed sick drawing it. Yeah. So I love that shot of her like having a fever, but her hand is just like moving over mm-hmm. paper drawing. By the way, that's such a fucking Stephen King like uh, plot device. Is this like the drawing? Pa- yeah, drawing and like it's it's telling the future, but yeah. also like totally not in control of it. It's like it's, right. Yeah. I do love. I we didn't talk about this in the beginning, but it is it, it makes for a really amazing uh, credit sequence because there's like a three year time jump. And so in that time, the way that we see what has gone on and how these kids are, like, living Mm -hmm. is that it's the credits over all of these kind of, like, fade-in, fade-out pictures of Sarah's drawings. The crayon drawings. Yeah, crayon drawings. They're they're so well done as children's drawings. They don't look too good. Yeah, they're very rudimentary, we should say. They're so cute. All the little faces have, like, little smiles, Mm -hmm. but they're, like, burning shit and, like, putting people up on, like, you know, corn husk crucifixes in the little square that they have and, like... It's really well... I think it's a really well done credit sequence. Or on this topic of uh, Malachi being a piss baby. Uh, <laughs> he really is. It must be real hard for Job. I mean, it, like, it's hard to play games with uh, a sibling who could see the future. Like, she is hustling his ass. <laughs> like... That's true. She's drawing, like, a picture of, like, what his hand of cards looks like. But not even... Like, like she's straight up... Like, they're playing Monopoly when we see them. And, like, she's straight hustling him. And, like, he's trying to cheat her. And, like... No. He's like, a bad cheater, though. He's very bad He needs cheating. some new techniques. Uh, I don't know. It just must be rough playing games with her every day, because <laughs> he must never win. Um, it's weird. So, like, Malachi is... There's, like, a there's a group of teenagers, because you age out of this at 19, uh, of the... <laughs> Can we explain what that means, you age out of this? We'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about, like, the dynamics of how the cult works in a sec, but you, you cease to be a corn kid at 19, uh, and Malachi's part of the, like, older group. He's also clearly, like, the enforcer. They're the, yeah, they're he, the, the muscle. Yeah, yeah. Well, well Malachi seems, specifically seems Isaac's enforcer. Um, just, again, despite, he, I mean, he's kind of goofy looking. Part of it is his, like, mop of red hair. But it's also, like, mm-hmm. every line is so whiny. God, I hate him. But, like... <laughs> but he's so amusing. I think, the, I think the dynamic that is so interesting, and... I think the dynamic that's so interesting is that Malachi is older than most of the children... In this group, he's he's not the oldest, but he's one of the oldest. He's he's one of the oldest, and a lot of what he does involves bossing smaller children around. Mm-hmm. And but he also has no like institutional power, right? And he, again, he's also like so immature. I think that's like the weird conflict is that like there's a power trip element for him that he gets to, I mean, like throw these kids around and like tell them what to do, and also like leads his band of like sickle wielding mm-hmm. enforcers. Yeah. Um, but also, like, he's just, like, so stunted. I mean, they all are. There's literally, like, no, like, there's no way to mature here. Um, right, because the second you could even gain any maturity, you age out of the corn kids. Yeah. Uh, also, it's not just him, but they, when they're chasing Bird around town, they keep going, Outlander! Oh, my God. Outlander! When he's calling for him when he has Vicky, and he's just screaming it, I'm like, he can't hear you. You just yelling is not going to do anything. Uh, I want to talk about Isaac, though. Let's talk about Isaac. Who is so good. Again, greatest. Again, like, played by an adult actor. But you didn't know, right? I had no idea until mm-hmm. you told me. Um, it also explains why he's so good and why there's so much, like... And why the most interesting thing about him, I think, when you look at him, is that you do... He's not like a... I mean, most people who listen to this know what he looks like, but just, you know, for the benefit of those who don't, um, he doesn't look like a 25-year-old playing a, probably, what, 11, yeah. 12-year-old. He looks like a 12-year-old. Um, but he looks like a 12-year-old who's, like, kind of seen some shit. He can see that he kind of, like, has, you know... I don't want to say wrinkles, because I don't mean wrinkles. He's 25-year-old, like, he's not, he's right. not that old. But he has, like, um... It's like, like weathered. His face looks weathered. His face looks, his face looks weathered. The same way that, like, just pretty much all adults who are not, like, little baby-faced children mm-hmm. have the signs of life on their face. And that's why I ended up looking him up, because I was like, why does he look like he has an older face? Mm-hmm. And the answer is because he's 25. 
And this, do you want to get into this now? Because this is going to, this opens up my, a big thing that I want to talk about with this movie, specifically about Isaac. I don't know what you're going to say, but yeah, uh, absolutely. <laughs> um, the, we also talked about this last week when we were talking about The Unborn, um, because when I was looking up John Franklin, what I wanted to know is if he had any kind of disorder. Mm-hmm. And the answer is yes, he has a genetic uh, hormone disorder. And that is why he's so small. He's an adult now. He's like 50 something. And he's still like about five feet tall. Mm-hmm. And I I am so interested in this. I feel like we first talked about this when we talked about um, the man in Baskin. Yes. Uh, because, I mean, it was such a surprise for both of us to find out that he was not wearing prosthetics. He was like a man playing a horrifying evil cult leader who's a lot of his fear the audience's fear came from the fact that he looked this way. Mm-hmm. And it's a similar thing with the little boy from The Unborn last week, that it was like this creepy little kid with this high-pitched voice. But, like, he's that way because he has a genetic disorder. And it was the same way with John Franklin in this movie. And I am... I don't know if I have an answer yet about this, but I am interested in, and I want to talk about more, if not on this episode, but on future episodes where I'm sure this will come up again, this idea of casting horror movie villains especially like creepy little children mm-hmm. as um, either children or adults who have disorders. I I can't tell whether it like really... It's complicated. It's, it's really complicated. Like, there is no clear there, answer. It's very complicated. It does on some level stigmatize physical disorders as being scary. And I think that is potentially like an issue. Um, yeah. Just the idea that like, you know, another person... I mean, John Franklin, I'm not sure that I'm like trying to defend John Franklin in this instance because he's an actor he, like, wanted to act. He has the ability as a person to say, like, I don't want to do this role. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know? Well, he has a lot more agency than a, than a child. Than does. a child, exactly. And so there is an element of, like, I'm not, like, I'm not sure that I'm, like, trying to defend John Franklin right now, but who I am defending are people like John Franklin who are not actors, who are 25-year-olds who then might be perceived as others looking like the little kid from Children of the Corn. You know what I mean? Well, this is the other... This is also the case... Again, we're talking about adults who can make these decisions for themselves. I mean, the guy from Baskin was thrilled. The guy from Baskin was really excited about uh, using his deformity to, like, be a horror movie villain. Yeah. Which is, like, complicated. That's but, his like, choice. It's his choice, and we can't we, we can't criticize that. Yeah. Like, we can criticize the cultural underpinnings of, like, othering people who look different. But, yeah. like... That actor made a choice, and so I can't say the portrayal is, like, necessarily offensive, you know? No, and it's I and, and that's why I'm not, like, I'm not trying to cut down these movies for doing it necessarily. Um, I think it's just, it's just the cultural impact that I'm interested in, and I guess it's sort of, what it means is similar to a lot of movie, especially horror movie things, it just necessitates having a conversation about them. Absolutely. Especially, like, with your children, because yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. this movie isn't, like, for little kids but a teenager could watch it it's not like horrifyingly inappropriate or like even that gory uh, you know a, a teenager watches when I, I was watching friday the 13th when i was like 14 it's a lot less gory than that this is exactly yeah. absolutely so a, a younger teenager could watch this and it would just be important to have the cultural context of like this doesn't mean that other people in the world who have this disorder can be kind of like made fun of or even like stigmatized in any kind of negative way of like this kid, he looks like a creepy little kid Mm -hmm. or he looks like a horror movie villain or he looks like some other, I mean, Baskin also is not mainstream. I'm not worried about like people people watching Baskin and being like, I'm terrified of people with facial deformities. But this movie is mainstream, and I just I'm just interested in the if this along with other horror movies of their ilk um, leads to the stigmatization of people with you know deformities and uh, genetic disorders. Yeah, just something I wanted to bring up. I'm always I'm always interested in what if these movies were made now? What would we change to you know fix them or not fix them? I mean, then or again, like we keep the same. It's just interesting to me. Last thing I want to say about. Isaac and Malachi is that I think that they're the tension between them of how to run this community is one of the more interesting things in the movie. I agree. Uh, Malachi is clearly, you know, of the sword and Isaac seems to, we can't get, this, this might be a good segue into like what's going on in this cult, but Isaac seems very, I mean, he's, he's a lot more interested in like 
interpreting the quote-unquote text, whereas Malachi just wants to rule with an iron fist. Well, and and function. Because I think one of the most interesting things that happens, and why I was getting really frustrated in the beginning, and then it sort of got explained, is that there's a sequence, you know, where Isaac and Malachi aren't aware what's, of what's going on with Bert and Vicky, and they... Isaac sends Malachi to war- to get the old man who yeah. runs the gas station and to make sure that they don't tell Burton Vicky that he doesn't tell Burton Vicky to come here. But Malachi just kills him. Mur- straight up murders him. Doesn't even ask him any questions. Kills him and his dog and the dog for no reason. For absolutely no reason, just out of joy. Um, and he he really likes fucking with him too. He fucks with him for like a little bit before he kills him. Just pure like it's really psychotic and yeah, horrible. It's yeah, like, it's like the worst. Sa- like very uh, sadistic. And then later Isaac is like. I told you to just tell him. Now we don't have his oil. Like, what's your problem? Well, we don't need it. We, we have, have the corn. corn. Idiot. So, like, Isaac is interested in, like, keeping this society functioning, whereas Malachi very specifically clearly just wants to, like... Enact wrath. In- like- yeah, wrath. Very, very clearly revenge. Like, he just wants to kill. And they both... It's not like Malachi's, like, you know, just being chaotic. He wants to... uh obey the laws that they are that have been upheld mm-hmm. they just have really di- different interpretations of them it's very interesting and again i think part of what makes this dynamic so interesting is that the movie i mean isaac gets overthrown by malachi like he actually gets overthrown and he gets crucified and then uh isaac comes back as a demon and takes Mal. like yeah it's it's an he actual, walks he walks from the rides wants both of them there's an actual like back and forth though about like like isaac gets overthrown by this i mean sadistic idiot who clearly does not know how to actually lead the society Mm-mm. uh we should also say isaac getting got uh is like one of the worst looking sequences in the movie he like fades into red it looks like the film is kind of burning oh yeah it just it's... looks so bad the special effects in this are really bad. bad they're bad there's one moment that i think is good and i but it's it's what made it feel more complicated for me but l- so a little later in this like climax isaac comes back and his like face is all white and he's got a deep voice and he's like he wants you to malachi it's not like that though it's so funny because um john franklin has a very kind of like it's not high pitched but it has a a tenor to it Mm -hmm. and so it's like they made it deep but they kept that tenor so it's more like i want they want you to malachi (laughs) it's really weird they just had him like say the lines a little slower and they slowed it down yeah uh so yes it's not like my voice slow down but uh and he, like, claims his soul somehow? Yep. Like, it's... Listen, he walks behind the rose. I don't really get it. It's fine. We'll talk about it. You know what? Let's talk about it. I... Let's let's just get into it. Now is the time. Okay. I find cults super fascinating. Did you know that's the next American Horror Story? I did not. I, it made me really excited because it's American Horror Story cult. Just a sidebar. Will it be good? Who, Who fucking knows? knows? I don't know. But I'll watch the first episode. <laughs> like we did last year with Roanoke. Is that just last year? Yeah. Oh, we did not even watch past episode two. Nope. It's fine. Uh, I think I think the most intriguing part of this movie, and I'm setting this up again to knock it down, is this like cult and the dynamic of it. Um, he who walks behind the rose and his servant, Isaac, uh, have come to this town and they have decided that all the adults need to be slain. And to talk about this, we should also, I mean... The, the the movie explicitly tells us that this is not fake. There is actually something supernatural going on here. This is it not It takes Isaac. a second to get there, though. Sure. It doesn't tell you immediately. But, like, I want to talk about this in terms of what... I really want to know what's going on here. So to have this mm-hmm. conversation, we have to address, like... This is not Isaac coming to this town and seducing, like... I don't even think Isaac these... came to the town. Isaac is a child. He was there before he had parents that he probably No, they killed. talk about Isaac coming. They talk about him coming. Maybe they're talking about he... I think they're talking about he walked by in the rose, not Isaac. Okay, well, Isaac... Did not seduce all these children into whatever this was. Right. Like, this is a real, tangible thing. Uh, this, like, corn god that they must, like, appease. Um, and it's what th- the most interesting to me is that, like, they are so clearly rejecting Christianity, but their Christianity is still so present in this religion and their cult. See, again, the rules of this cult, like, on a day-to-day level, like, music and drawings and, like, entertainment is forbidden. Mm-hmm. Um, which is like such an interesting, like, inverse of a society without parents, right? So they create a society without parents, right? And they take and they away still having can't have fun. any fun. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. think that's like, again, one of the most interesting parts of this movie is that they that's so true. I never they, about that. They do this to themselves. They take away their amusement after killing all their parents, which is you would think a child like a child run society would be nothing but like, you know, 
hedonism like constantly, but they have no pleasure at yeah. all. And it's like, and some of them, again, we don't know to what extent this is like just Malachi's iron fist, like believe in this. They're not questioning. I think they all do except for Job and Sarah and maybe a couple of other kids, like the one who wants to run away. Right. But it's very specifically supposed to be like the kids who were there in the cornfield when uh, he walks behind the rows came to town they are so fully in. Uh-huh. Like, they love this. Is the curly-haired one Ruth? Is that her name? I don't remember. There's a curly-haired one who's, like, almost as um, fervent as Malachi. She's, mm-hmm. like, so into this town. She seems to be the one who um, is in, in control of the sending the people away when they turn 19. Yeah, It so seems like that's her, like, dominion, don't you think? Also, yeah. Let's also talk about that, which is that... Uh... When you turn 19, you go to be with he who walks behind the rose, and you get crucified and burned, right, is what's happening. We don't see do they, it happen. We don't see it happen. I thought... He gets they, cut... Did, okay, so do they, they go to do church. things to him? Yeah. He cuts this, like, the five-pointed star into his chest. Mm-hmm. Do they kill him, or does he just walk into the cornfield, and he who, who he walks behind the rose takes him? I can't tell. That's, okay, so... I, know, I feel like we're, like, just bouncing around this... I don't know what's happening. <laughs> At one point, I thought that he who walks behind the rose, which, by the fucking way, is such an unwieldy name for your god. Like, come up with something better than know, he I'm who walks behind the rose. It. <laughs> he who walks behind the, the rose. rose. It's like it's like a if shitty name. If you say it a bunch of times, though, it comes naturally to you. It, no, it's a bad name. It's too unwieldy. It has a bad like the acronym isn't even good. Like, there's no good way to talk about <laughs> he who walks behind the rose. Yeah, you're right. It doesn't spell anything. It's dumb. Uh, at one point, I thought he was a dragon. Um. He's, oh yeah, because well, there's a Sarah draws a picture of a dragon like roasting yeah. someone, and it's but he's also like a tremors. I think that's a, I think that's her like childlike interpretation of what he is. He's also because, like a cloud, or he's like a storm. Yeah. Oh yeah, because that's that's that actually I was wrong. Our first clue that there is actually something supernatural going on is that the clouds move ultra fast, mm-hmm. and you hear kind of like a like whenever they move, and that's when I was like watching it. I was like, what? Hmm? Is this real? Is this a real monster demon thing? It also, it, it, despite being an entity, it's also the cornfield, kind of, or it's possessing the cornfield because it has tendrils that will get you and drag you in. Like, literally, the corn will literally grab Does you, which is... Does it grab him in the daytime or the nighttime? Daytime. Okay, cool. So there's, there's also a sense of, like, in the daytime, it's semi-safe. But also, they burn the cornfield at the end of the movie to kill it? Yes. Presumably? Yes. Um... I, I, honestly, I'm very confused. I don't know what's happening here. My main confusion is that, like, a big part of this religion is the and a child will lead them thing. Yeah, so... And that's biblical. So I don't understand why that's, like, the tenet of their religion is and a child will lead them because they don't follow the Bible. Why is this their big line if they don't follow the Bible? They explicitly reject the Bible and, you know draw faces on Jesus's... Yes. Oh, I, I want to talk about that because that is my other favorite thing about this is the Jesus set dressing mm-hmm. is that wherever there's like a Jesus picture or a Jesus statue, they do various things to like... I think they put corn kernels in his teeth. Yeah. And they scratch out his eyes and they give him like corn hair and it looks really cool. It looks awesome. And I also... This is sidebar, but like when, when Bert is in the... um police office there's a big sign on the wall of all the various different kinds of police that are in this town um i guess like sergeant officer detective whatever they all have different badges and every single one of them is crossed off and then it says no false gods which i think is like real also really cool and funny um so there's some set dressing in this that adds to the cult that's super interesting that i really like it is weird and i think it's inconsistent so again like i said i was setting this up to knock it down I want so much more about, like, what's going on with this cult, what the actual practical applications of going to be with he who walks behind the rose, what he who walks behind the rose actually wants other than, like, children to praise him. That's another extra confusing thing that I felt like was kind of a plot hole, but maybe that's sort of an explanation for it, is what does Gatlin want as a town, including the children and he who walks behind the rose? Like, what is their goal? Is their goal to, like, utterly live in complete peace and never have anyone bother them? Or do they need sacrifices, which I don't think they would because they're giving a 19-year-old to them every time. 
but there's every time they turn 19. But there's a very confusing part um, with the signs for Gatlin where the um, old man at the gas station specifically says, like, go to Hemingford. It's 19 miles away. It'll take you 20 minutes. Do not go to Gatlin. And they try very hard to follow his advice, but they keep... The signs for Gatlin keep, like... They go to Hemingford and Gatlin keeps coming up. So, like, who did that? Or is it he who walks behind the rose? Like, why do they want... Why does whoever is doing this want them to come to Gatlin? It I, seems like they want the opposite of that. I also wrote that down. I can't tell if it's a, like, a temporal, like, pocket that they're in that they can't escape. Like mind games? Uh, yes, like mind <laughs> games. Like many things. Uh, where they literally, like, they cannot leave this... Or if it's just physically the signs were moved to confuse people. Either way, I don't know what the goal is. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. What are they trying to do? They should want them to go away. They seem like they're doing not fine, but they think they're doing fine. Like, I can't imagine Isaac and Malachi want outsiders. No, not at all. They specifically want them to go away. And I I don't think he wants Behind the Rose wants outsiders either, because he gets a fresh 19-year-old sacrifice every time one of them turns another age. Can we talk about the elephant in the room, the unfortunate one? There's many elephants in the room, but what? Many elephants in the cornfield. Huh. Uh, there's like a... There's kind of an expiration date on this community, unless they procreate. Oh, well... Which is only possible under specific circumstances. Uh, what do you mean? It depends entirely on the composition of the group. Uh have got plenty of girls and boys. Sure, but... We don't know how, first of all, we don't know how many there are. Sometimes it seems like there's 60, and sometimes it seems like there's 20. And there have to be enough, like, pubescent people at one time. in the short story, that is addressed. Oh, really? They specifically have babies, and one of them is pregnant with Malachi's baby. Stephen King loves to write about children fucking. Yeah. This and it, and I'm sure it was It was 12 years in the the horror, uh, it was 12 years in the short story. It's a lot longer to, like, have some children grow up. What's 12 years? The time between when they kill their parents and when Bert and Vicky come. Oh, I thought you were saying it's they get sacrificed at 12, which is oh, even no. more horrifying. That's awful. No, no, no. Don't even say that. No, it's 19, um, but it's 12 years in between the inciting incident and the end, um, which gives them a little bit more time, I guess, to grow up and have babies and then, sure. like, you know. But I, also, there's no... It's not like they're doing it for pleasure and they're not getting married. Malachi could like well, go impregnate again, all there, the girls. Again, there's no pleasure. Right, like, exactly. Like... So it's just it is just to continue their society. But you're right, there has to be certain numbers so that there isn't a lot isn't like too much incest, although I can't imagine how much they care. They have to. Yeah. I don't know. Again, it's it's clearly not a problem for them right now. They all have to grow up first, but like I don't know. It's in just this they seemed in the movie, I thought that would kind of be the idea. It's only been three years, so it doesn't they would have come up yet because the Fair. Younger teenagers are just getting older, and it seemed like they've only killed, like, f- six uh, 19-year-olds. It's just another... Again, the only reason I brought it up was because I'm interrogating how this community works. Community and how, works. like, what the goals of this cult are. Mm-hmm. Because, like, is it, like, trying to continue itself? Is the goal to spread? Is the goal to live in Gatlin in perpetuity and just, like, continue... Worshipping he walks from those here. It's completely unclear and like there isn't even a hint. That's part of my problem, is that like I have no problem with a horror movie like leaving me wanting more, especially like in its lore and especially like wanting like the questions that I'm asking can absolutely be unanswered and like teased and that's how you get a franchise. But it has to make sense also. I don't even I don't even think it was teased. Yeah. I don't think the movie wants me to ask these questions. Well and it and it doesn't matter because it's over. The end of the movie is that it's over. We'll, t- we'll talk about that in a second, but no. That's part of my confusion. Okay. It's not over, but right. we'll talk about it. Um, I want to talk about the short story real quick first. Let's talk about the short story, which uh, was published in Penthouse in 1977. Oh my God. Which is, again, just real funny to me that, like, obviously, like, you know, lad mags in the 70s, like, published writing, I guess. Yeah. But, like, the fact that Stephen King was, like, sending stories to Penthouse <laughs> in... 77, at which point he was already a fairly famous writer. I mean, he wasn't a superstar. Yeah. 
Carrie had already been made. Yeah, like, and Stephen King, like, has um, a variance of writing. Like, he doesn't just write horror. He's written, like, other kinds of things, like fantasy and, you know, just thriller and stuff. Le- less so at that point. At the point, he was... That's fair. Okay, also, in the 70s, he was writing a ton of short stories. I mean, I keep bringing up Carrie because I love it so much. Right. That was a novel first. Mm-hmm. I think maybe he had written, like, Christine at this point. Mm-hmm. But, like, he was writing a ton of short stories. Mm-hmm. It just surprises me that he was fucking sending them to penthouse right well this is a very 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 short one i think that short story can mean so many different things Mm -hmm. it could be like 50 pages or it could be four and this is more like four um but it does the thing that i really really with all my heart wish that this movie did uh i hate nothing more than the opening sequence with job's fucking voiceover like i know we've discussed that the uh diner scene is really is really well done and i agree but I, the fact that it exists infuriates me because legitimately I want this movie to be a mystery. I really would prefer it started with Bert and Vicky and they stumble upon this town and they have to figure out what's going on. That to me is just so much more interesting if they had to be like, there's no adults in this town. Oh, a child. Oh, this child wants to hurt me. Like those, that's so much more interesting to me. Is that how the story unfolds? That is how the story unfolds in the short story. It opens with Bert and Vicky in their car. Uh, the biggest difference between Bert and Vicky in the story and movie Bert and Vicky is that story Bert and Vicky hate each other. Hmm. They hate each other. They're married. This whole trip is so that they can go to California and save their marriage. Whereas in the movie, we didn't discuss this. They are heading to Bert's first job. I think he's just finished medical school. They're heading to his like his res- his apprenticeship or residency or whatever. In Seattle. In Seattle. Um, so it's, that that's an exciting trip for them. This trip is supposed to be like, this is supposed to save their marriage. Um, and it doesn't. They are furious with each other the entire time. The way that Bert acts in the movie is pretty much the same as the short story. He's, like, re- too curious. He wants to, like, go return this body somewhere and call someone for whatever reason. And, like, he just he's so nosy. He wants to know what's going on in the town. He seems to, like, want to find solve the mystery on principle alone. And Vicky's, like... Get the fuck back in the car. Yeah. I'm leaving without you if you're not back here in five minutes. Like, they hate each other. They want to kill each other. Like, they... We don't root for them the same way that we root for them in the movie. Yeah. Um, and then, very, very quickly, they find the town hall. The same thing happens with hitting the child in the road and realizing that the child's mm-hmm. throat has been slit. They find the town hall. Vicky wants to stay in the car. She really quickly gets taken by children. Someone tries to stab, or someone does stab Bert. Um, and he runs and he hides in the corn for like hours upon hours until sunset walks back. Vicky is already dead. Her eyes are gouged out and stuffed with corn and her mouth is stuffed with corn. What the fuck? Like immediately. And then he's like, oh shit. And then he who walks behind the rose just straight up gets him. And then he is, he has, Bert has a couple other scenes where he talks about like the lore where he, he sees like, he finds the book that says, this is when this person was born, this is when they died, and that's when he sees that um, two children have been born in the time of this uh, time period. Um, He's like, oh, they did this in 1963, and in 1964, these two kids were born. Oh, interesting. I guess it was the 50s, because this is taking place in 1963. So, the the end, so once Bert's dead, it then transitions to the children, and they discuss a little bit more of their, like, story, and there's a very specific scene where Malachi is turning 19, so he walks into the corn, um, and Ruth, who is pregnant with his child, is like sad to see him go. And she, there's a little part where it's like Ruth often dreams about setting the cornfield on fire. Um, but then it's like the corn was happy because it had uh, sacrifices. The end. So like, please tell me the sentence the corn was happy it's, appears. It's I think it honestly might be the corn was pleased. It's something like that. Like it, it I'm not exaggerating. What a it meme! Is, it is something like that. <laughs> So it's a very different short story, yeah. and I don't. I I like that we like Bert and Vicky in the movie, mm-hmm. um, but I really reading the short story and watching them figure it out was so much more fun for me. Even though it took me ten seconds to read, than an, for the first forty five minutes of this movie being like, what's going on in this town? When we as audience members already know. I agree. It is very clumsy. It's like a again. I think it speaks to. I mean, your main complaint about this, like you said earlier, is the script, and you know. It's a really sloppy setup to give us all the information we need. Again, not the information I want, but the information we need, and then have these two characters come in and stumble their way through this. There's a long segment. 
in the middle of this movie where I was tuning out because Bert and Vicky are just walking through a house that has been emptied and there's corn everywhere and there's no there's no music. It's just them walking through this house and it's so slow. And imagine if we didn't know where they were or what was going on. There could be tension. Yes. Instead, it's just like, it's so like a waste of our time. I I fully agree. Uh, I haven't read the short story at all, but that sounds like a much better way to frame this. Absolutely. We should talk about the end of this movie. Um, So wrapped up in that, I also want to talk about uh, a now screaming favorite topic, which is just kick the child. Um, I know, I can't believe I brought that up last week, and then we immediately had this movie, which is all about, like, they're small, just kick them. Yeah, so the children end up being, other than Malachi, who again is a big teenager with a big weapon. He has a machete. Yeah, aside from Malachi, and the rest of them are armed, but, like, Malachi is, like, physically Malachi and his machete are specifically scary. Yeah. Um, Bert overpowers these children pretty easily when he's, like, he has to run out of the church... Uh, at one point, and he's like, he's surrounded by them, and they try to hold him back, and they just can't. <laughs> oh, yeah, wait, wait, it's, it's when he's in the church, yeah. and Ruth is like, grab him, and they try, he's like, get the fuck off me, like, it's so easy for him to just shrug them off, it made me laugh so hard. Which is, which leads to my question, which is, how many kids would there have to be for this to actually be scary? Like, not 20? More of them would have to be teenagers, because I specifically, my takeaway of this movie was, mobs of teenagers are so scary. So they'd only really have to be, like, ten teenagers to be scary. But all these ten-year-olds, like, but like you doing yeah, nothing. But, like, 30, 40 children. Like, to really, like, like picture, like, them climbing all over you and dragging you down. There'd have to be enough of them to do that. Because I think that's part of the problem. Because even Ruth, who's, like, again, like, really... I hope it's Ruth. That's what you called her from the short story. I'm going to keep calling her that. Me too. Who's, like, so fanatical. The last jump scare of this She's movie... She's 15, probably. The last jump scare of this movie is um, that they're trying to, they're going to get in the car to go away. The car doesn't work, but like they're going to get in the car and she's in the oh, back he's, seat. He's getting the map. So they're going to find their way out of the town. Uh, yeah, okay, so getting. he's getting the map out of the car and she's in the back seat and she jumps on them and it's not even scary. It's so silly. She like knocks herself out. Like, well, no, they slam the car door on her and she, and she gets knocked out. Well, right, because she's coming at them. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like so... <laughs> it's so silly. It's so anticlimactic and stupid and it's like... I think the goal was genuinely to be frightening, was like, in all these, like, slash movies. Yeah, it's movies, a final jump scare, It's yeah. like a last jump scare, and it's just, it's pathetic. Well, it's because it's so, it's such, it actually changes the tone of the end of the movie so much, and it actually makes me kind of mad, because the very, very end of this movie is so happy and positive. Uh, Bert and Vicky... I don't agree, but... Bert and Vicky and Job and Sarah have become, like, parents and children, mm-hmm. and there's a whole thread of the movie where, like... Vicky really wants Bert to, like, commit and marry her. She's really pushing. She's like, is that a proposal? And then he's like, no. And then later when they're listening to the radio, she's like, oh, fear of commitment. Like, she just, like, wants to be committed to him so badly. And he seems to be kind of, like, backing off a little bit. So at the end, when she's like, Bert, these are our kids now. He's like, okay. So they're, like, heading off in the sunset together to be parents and children. And then... Uh, Ruth pops up and tries to get him and they knock her out and Bert throughout the entire movie has had this weird like lawful thing where he's like a child in peril I must immediately find the authorities and alert them even when it is like the stupidest thing in the entire world and specifically this part he's like oh well what should what should we do with her now when the obvious answer which is what vicky says is just leave her and walk away she's knocked out leave but he's like no we have to like like we had no strings and now we have one string what do we do and it's like walk away yeah so it does change the tone of the ending in a weird way i agree i want i mean i want to address this when you say walk away you mean literally walk away because the end of this movie is they're gonna walk 19 miles to the next town um, and like the credits roll over them milling about around the car and starting to walk 19 miles, <laughs> which is again, like so anticlimactic and really unfun. The other thing that I want to point out, because our last scene in the movie is at this car, this is our location where this jump scare happens. Um, that body is still in the trunk. They, oh yeah. This movie completely forgets that there's a corpse rotting in this trunk. What are this, they supposed to do about it? Literally anything. Like, Bring it up. Like, this... Bert would at least have remembered, like, his goal was to get this to a hospital. He makes a phone call to try to, like, arrange this. And, no. As soon as, like, shit goes down and, like, there's, like, oh, there's a mystery to solve in this town. I'm just gonna wander through the streets and then Vicky's gonna get kidnapped and I'm gonna do all this stuff. They just leave this body in the truck. And it's, it's not, like... 
the, the problem is that the movie forgets about it, not that the character forgets about it. The problem is, this is the driving force of specifically the first half of the movie yeah, actions yeah, yeah, of why right. he's getting involved in this town in the first place and then just forgets about you're it. You're right. I don't care that he forgets about it because a lot of other shit goes down and I don't blame him for being like this kid in the trunk who's already dead is the least of my problems and I didn't kill him. But it is frustrating that this movie had a purpose mm-hmm. and then it didn't fulfill it. Like it doesn't follow a nice arc of like this is the problem. The problem is solved. I guess he walks behind the rose is sort of the problem is solved, but like he's defeated because they burned down the cornfield. Yes, but like yeah. that that wasn't their goal from the beginning. No. That was nobody. That was never anybody's goal until the middle, and then so they're just there isn't like Not a driving the force in the middle of this movie. They don't care about defeating he who walks behind. They the want road. to just get out. They care about getting out. There's it's only the point where they realize that their only way to get out is to defeat he who mm-hmm. walks by the rose. Speaking of that, really quickly, I do think it is the only good part, the only good like SFX part of this movie mm-hmm. is when they um, blow up the cornfield, and it's a very good step-by-step intricate sequence of like hook the hose up to the oil get the hose to this thing this is going to sprinkle her the whole cornfield it's usually water but now it's oil uh the lighter from the beginning of the movie that she gives him as a gift comes back to be like that is good Chekhov's gold-plated lighter exactly i love it um and then they they make a um what's it called again with the bottle and the Molotov cocktail yeah uh doesn't work joe has to run and get it bring it back then they throw it then the whole thing goes up in flames and there's a bunch of like um big huge fiery explosions and then in one of the fiery explosions there's like a face you see the kind of shitty like um fiery the same thing that crawled up isaac's body that looks really bad but for some reason in this fire it looks better and then there's like a face it's like the uh thing that happens in until dawn that i don't want to spoil but it's the same kind oh, of like... Oh, yes. Very, you're right. Very, very similar. And I really like that. I think that's cool. Um, I don't know if that means that, like, he's gone or if that means he died. But it was a cool effect of seeing, like... The way that they represent He Walks Behind the Rose is very interesting because it's... To me, like, I didn't know whether I hated it or loved it. I hate See, it with Isaac. To me, it's inconsistent. To me, what you're describing is they had, like, four ideas. They didn't, they didn't pick one. Yeah, but I like the way that it looks on this movie. It's actually surprising that I liked it because I... Typically, my MO with this kind of stuff is that I don't like 70s and 80s movie yeah. um, CGI or special effects because I think it looks bad. And this looked bad, but I really thought the juxtaposition of the way that it was done, like, over the like hyper realism of children of the corn because there's no other special effects in it except for these weird computer animation kind of things so i i actually found it kind of like interesting i don't know Mm. i'd want to like talk to somebody about what that process was like i guess i want to know how it was done yeah i don't know i just found it interesting more than i think i usually would in a movie like this i think ultimately my main problem with the ending here is that this could just be me feeling like just like let down at the end is that this feels like it was a minor inconvenience in their lives. Like, the stakes feel so low. Who? Pervert and Vicky? Pervert and who? I said pervert and Vicky. Uh, yeah, kind of. Like, it's just, it's their body language. It's their tone at the end. Like, oh, well, now we got two kids and we're going to walk to the next town. Yeah, it's especially because like- Bert's not into it. He's like, I guess you can stay for a week. And they're like, how about a month? And he's like, ha ha no and they're like how about a year and he's like no for real no but like vicky and the kids are like laughing as if he's kidding but it's like the most like kind of weird way to end this movie it's so yeah it just i think it it just it makes me feel like there were no stakes the whole time it's like it feels so silly especially because the climax is so like literally explosive and there's so much fire and there's so much going on and then they're just like well guess we're gonna move on now guess we'll just walk 19 miles with two children Le- fun. Leave this rotting corpse in a car with this knocked out child. You're really hung up on the corpse. At this point, it doesn't matter. Millions of children are probably dead. Millions of children. <laughs> Tens of children are probably dead. <laughs> Literally dozens <laughs> Literally of them. Literally dozens. Um, can I talk about my two other plot hole problems in this movie? Please do, while we're on the topic. One of them is, I have a real issue with dream sequences in movies. Because I think if it's going to be a dream sequence, you can't, like, reveal information the audience is supposed to know in any way. And they have a really weird dream sequence at the beginning of this movie where Vicky has been told to go back to the car by Bert while he looks for the suitcase. And we see him find the suitcase. And we see Vicky sleeping. And we see Malachi creeping out of the 
um, Corn to uh, get her, and he's got a long knife, and he's like, th- he's you know, like you told, like you talked about, he's like walking up to the car, and it's reflected in the back of the mirror, and then she gets out of the car and walks to the little boy in the middle of the road, and then he like flips over and glares at her, and then she wakes up, and it's a very, it's very poorly done because I feel like you don't know what was real, and I feel like if, if the answer is, oh, it was all imagined, then, like, Malachi wasn't stalking them. Like, I right. don't really get it. And I think that's, like, a poorly done dream sequence. Yeah, I don't know if it's a plot hole. It's more just, like, a... It's, like, a really, like, unnecessarily convoluted execution. Yeah, well, it, it just it made me confused. Because it's also not the way that scares work the rest of the movie. No. It's... it's The rest it's of the movie, the one, it's a lot of... Yeah. It's the same kind of, like, building dread. It's, like, shots of... And I think this, for the most part, works. It's, like, shots of weapons coming into frame, or you, like, see an arm doing something. Yeah. Not, like, the kid who's gonna do the bad thing. Yeah. And then in this, it's, like, it's so... I mean, it ends with, like, when she wakes up, she, she turns and looks in the road, and, uh... It's like a sharp zoom in on the body. And he's still there. It's dead. so it's dumb. sloppy. The other plot hole that I don't know, I actually texted you about this because I was so confused and I wasn't sure if I was missing something, but the woman who poisons everybody in the beginning of the movie, um, who works there and who like, put, she puts some kind of powder in the coffee. Yeah. She's an adult. And then when we see everybody like leaving the diner to go, I guess, join the other children who've murdered everybody she's there and she's like an old woman yeah. i thought maybe i was like oh no maybe she's a teenager because a teenager working the coffee counter yeah. at a diner makes perfect sense but like no she's in she's like gray curly hair and i just like didn't know what was going on and i don't know that they felt like they couldn't have a teenager do i just i was so confused and i don't even i don't know the answer still yeah i wish i had a better and i just feel you. like that's that's so Lazy? Lazy and mis- and mi- confusing. And I, I'm, like, really mad about it because it really, to me, like, ruins a good sequence. And I just don't get it. I'm, like, I'm honestly baffled. And it, it's very frustrating. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't know my one of my favorite things about this movie? What's that? The soundtrack. <laughs> yeah? I love it. The it's choral music? The, choral, the, the creepy children choral music. And then, like, the occasional, like, Latin uh, chanting. Mm-hmm. I just... It was so creepy. It's again like it's uh, the the first time you really hear it a ton is um in the credit sequence with the children's pictures. Yeah. So it's just so well done. I just I noticed it every time it happened. It's so creepy. It absolutely sets the mood. Definitely. I like it's one of the things in this movie that I thought was so iconic and beloved that it makes the other parts that are bad stand out and so it was very frustrating. Mhm. Yeah, no, I I totally hear you. And again, there are sequences in this movie that are silent that don't need to be. So I wish that like it was Agreed. a little more consistent. Yep. So to look ahead a bit, I alluded to this earlier, but I want to talk a little bit about the legacy of this movie because it's it's a full on franchise in a way that no other Stephen King adaptation is. Um, I mean, nothing even comes close. There are there are eight sequels to this movie, a remake, and there's another sequel coming out that's like in production. Coming out? There's another one in production. Yeah. Oh my god. Uh, it's it's the most. How much can you say about this movie? It's the most expansive of any Stephen King like property, which is which is crazy to me, and I'm I'm very confused about that because I mean this movie was made for eight hundred thousand um, dollars, which is cheap as hell. Mm-hmm. Uh, it made fourteen million, which is a, a hell of a good return on investment. Oh, yeah. But like that's not a lot even by nineteen eighty four standards. I went and looked at box office stuff. And this was like the 64th highest grossing movie of 1984. Hmm. Uh, incidentally, the movie that made more money than it was Breaking 2 Electric Boogaloo. <laughs> which is incredible. Oh my god. Up there at uh, 63 with $15 million gross. But like, I mean, w- by the time this movie came out, Friday the 13th was already on its fourth iteration and like, they were just printing money at that point. Um, but those, Friday the 13th movies made so much more money than Children of the Corn. Like, Again, th- this was a good return investment, but it wasn't like a-, a barn burner, like no pun intended. And the second one didn't come out till 1992. Like it took them eight years to make another one, and in the time since, someone has decided that this is worth like continuing to turn out. So the second one came out in 92. It's yeah, called- I don't even really get like Friday the Thirteenth is like a- is like 
you can do so much with it, I feel like. You can tell that story a million times. And again, it was making a ton of money, so it makes sense to keep doing it. I don't really it. even know what there's more, what there's left to say. So, the, the second one is called The Final Sacrifice, or Children of the Corn 2, The Final Sacrifice. Yeah. And it's about um, children who survive this Gatlin nonsense getting adopted and going somewhere oh. else, and then that whole thing. The third one, and this is where I, after this, I stopped looking at these because, Jesus Christ. But the third one is called Urban Harvest. And what? It takes place in Chicago. It is like sort of a sequel to the second one, I think. Uh, but it's like, it's about this city and it's about these brothers who, and I don't know. What? Don't, what? No, no. You have to tell me now. I'm so intrigued. Uh, <laughs> it didn't make a lot of sense to me when I was trying to read about it, but it is. Children of the Corn 3 is the film debut of Charlize Theron and Nicholas Brendan from Buffy the Vampire Slayer. I'm speechless. Yeah. Anyway, my point is, is this, like, Friday the 13th is kind of the best thing I have to compare it to. There's probably something better that I'm not thinking of, but, like... But it's so expansive. Stuff like, stuff like Halloween or, um... I mean, a lot of these, like, monolithic franchises are less schlocky than this. Mm-hmm. Like, this looks cheap, and it's not trying to make you think. The same way that Friday the 13th isn't trying to make you think. I agree, yeah. But, like, the fact that this didn't make close to the same amount of money, and it took up eight years to make another one, why are there nine of these, and they're working on a tenth? Like... I assume it has something to do with the creepy children fascination. That's like a, that's a big thing. I guess. It's like a very, I think it's just, it's a trope that like. But you know what? The sixth one, Children of the Corn 666, is about Isaac coming back. And it's, John Franklin comes back as Isaac and he looks older because he was older. Yeah. He he looks more clearly like an adult. I, again, I didn't keep reading the synopses because I can't, I can't be bothered. Yike, yike, yike. I think part, part of it, I can tell just from a behind-the-scenes standpoint, is that the third one, Urban Harvest, which is just so bad, was released by Miramax and Dimension Films. They had, like, acquired the Mm -hmm. rights, and obviously Dimension in the 90s was churning out horror movies. Yeah, it's like, please watch this. But still, I just, like, this isn't even that good of a movie to inspire this kind of, like, universe. And I'm just, I'm baffled. I promise you it's something about children, though. It's, like, a very, because... I can't think of any right now that are specifically about children. I can think of a lot that have a child somewhere in them, like The Ring and mm-hmm. and Pet Cemetery, like we said earlier, that have like some sort of creepy children vibe, but it's not the center. I think like hordes of creepy children. I mean, I think part of it has to be like that they're cheap to make because if you look at the list of, uh... <laughs> you don't have to pay kids that much. Well, not not just that, but like the you don't have to pay directors that much because I've never heard of any of the directors who made any of these sequels and most of them don't even have Wikipedia pages. Like, this isn't... That's how you know. I mean, kind of, like, it's... It can't be making that much money, though, is the confusing part. And, I mean, I joked about it last week when we got this. We could have gotten Children of the Corn Genesis instead of Children of the Corn. Netflix could have... <laughs> I think we would have probably done a Hellraiser thing though, and um, watched them both. Yeah, probably that would be that would be interesting. So that's, that's what I would have wanted to do at least if that had come up. I would have wanted to watch Children of the Corn and then do that one. Regardless, I don't have an answer for that either. I feel like just to sort of wrap this up, I feel like we have so many unanswered questions about this movie. Like, I just I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either. I'm disappointed. I'm disappointed that this movie has so many bad things because it has so many good things going for it, and it really is iconic. And I almost feel like it doesn't deserve it, and it's frustrating. There are, so, there are so many iconic moments. And, like, there's so many moments where I saw this, and I was like, the framing of this shot is great. And then... And John Franklin is really, really, really good. Five minutes later, I was like, this is trash. <laughs> like, literally, I was like, this is a bad shot. This is a badly edited sequence. This looks bad. It's the, it's I very frustrating. The dialogue the entire time was just like, I my face was like, you know, in shock at just how bad it could be. Like, there's there's one scene that sticks out in particular of when Vicky's talking to Sarah, and I wrote down, what a good scene of dialogue. And it's not good. It's competent. Yeah. It's like... That's where the bar is for this movie. Yeah, it's like, oh, this dialogue didn't want to make me, like, pull my face off in embarrassment, and that is, like, as good as it gets. Because mm-hmm. I just... You know, I'm yeah. just... Voiceovers. I, I, I'm sure there's exceptions, but I really hate them especially kid voiceovers. Like, don't do that to me. Like, I was just seven years old when he walks behind the rose, came and killed my whole family. Like, I just don't care. I do not care. It's so expository. It's just so annoying. I hate it. All right, are you ready to set this cornfield on fire? Yes. Let's uh, get the hell out of here. Please pull up the roulette. I'm so sick of corn. Let's just move on from corn. Bye, corn.
All right. Ready to spin that wheel? I am. Our next movie will be... The Devil's Dolls. It's from the director of Rites of Spring. Oh, no! (laughs) No! No! All right. (laughs) I can't wait to die. I'm so upset. Well, everyone, it's our past coming back to haunt us. We talked shit about Rites of Spring on every episode of this podcast. Since episode three, where we watched it. Oh, I actually was thinking the other day about it, because I was like, I don't really even remember what happens. Like, I've wiped it from my mind now. You've watched so much shit that you're getting nostalgic about Rites of Spring. I actually have. It had A.J. Bowen in it. Do you remember that? It did. (laughs) Whatever. So... That had corn, too. That was about farming. Damn it. That actually had... Probably a more concrete, like, sense of cult what, thing, like, or like what the corn god wants. Yeah, I don't know what the fuck this corn god what a wants. Masterpiece. Gotta love Rites of Spring. I actually do. This is gonna. I feel really bad about Rites of Spring because I think um someone involved in that movie liked this. Patrick Reynolds, director of that movie, did he like it on our Twitter? Liked our tweet about it. Um, I love you, Patrick Reynolds. <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> Join us next week as we discuss The Devil's Dolls. Maybe it'll be better. Which did it come before or after? It's it new. Been... It's new. Okay, maybe It came out last year or maybe, maybe this, this year. he went to directing school. In the meantime, maybe. Maybe. Fingers crossed, everybody. Please join us next week for... The Devil's Dolls. In the meantime, check out our website at nowscreaming.com. And on Twitter and Facebook at nowscreaming. Be sure to tell your friends about the podcast and leave a review on iTunes. So... Yeah, let us know what we're doing good or doing bad can do either. We would like to know what we're doing good. But you can tell us what we would need to improve also. Please don't send us corn emojis. That's a that's a Twitter joke. Is corn emojis a thing? It's a thing. Oh no. It's a liberals versus I'm gonna Democrats just like thing. take it over and be like he who walks behind the rose with corn emojis. <laughs> I'm gonna turn everyone into my corn cult. Uh leftist Twitter drama. Oh boy. As always, thanks to Wes Craven for Having, you know, real stakes in your movies with uh, scripts that, even if they don't always land, uh, have something to say. Yeah. At least kind of amusing. Not full of plot holes, maybe. Cursed has some plot holes. I was going to say, maybe thanks Wes Craven for not having, like, really inconsistent lore. Like, do you think that he does his lore pretty well? That's what yeah. I my experience. I like that. Yeah. Double Good job on your lore, Wes Craven. Double thanks to Wes Craven this week. <laughs> That's how much we love him compared to... Other directors. All right. Not naming names. Patrick Grant. <laughs> See you next week, everybody. Stay corny. Bye, everybody. Bye.